Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, The Pilgrim's Progress. All right, so when Peter started this letter in chapter one, he called the Christians that he was writing to exiles, exiles. And today, as we study his words in chapter two, we're gonna see that he uses that exact same term once again. And so by way of review, what does the word exile mean? Well, if you were here in week two, I defined it for you. Here it is again. The word exile, the, the Greek word there means, quote, one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the sides of the natives. And so um, whenever I quote verses, usually it's New King James Version because that was my Bible for like 25 years. And so I love the, the way that the New King James Version uh, translates the Greek word exile. Pilgrims, I like that. Peter wrote this letter to pilgrims, and where did they live? Again, by way of review, they lived in the first century Roman Empire, and that means places like, as we see in Peter's opening words to the letter, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all places that we know uh, today as modern-day Turkey. So even though these pilgrims lived in those places, those places were not their permanent home. So what was, and by the way, what is right now their permanent home? You, you guys tell me. Heaven. Can we all say the word heaven? Go ahead. Heaven. Is anybody excited about going there someday? Right? It's going to be so much better than here. And here, we're just here for a little while. It's a vapor. There, it's for all eternity. And so, according to Paul, uh, as believers, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What was true of Christians 2,000 years ago is still true for us today. As I've said before, we may live in Port St. Lucie, we may live in Fort Pierce, we may live in Stewart, we may live in Jensen Beach, over in Okeechobee, whatever. We all love living on the Treasure Coast. But as much as we love it, this is not our permanent home. Our permanent home is heaven as well. And I love this. As we're anticipating, looking forward to an eternity in heaven, what we need to do as Christian pilgrims is we need to be resolved to keep progressing spiritually here on earth, knowing that the end of our time here is gonna be just the beginning of our celebration up there as we enter into and live in that city that has foundations whose uh, designer and builder is God, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11. We have a lot to look forward to. The main idea in this message this afternoon is that as pilgrims, we must keep progressing. All right, so as pilgrims, we must keep progressing. Now the title of my message, The Pilgrim's Progress, no doubt will remind some of you of that literary classic written by John Bunyan way back in the 17th century AD. The Pilgrim's Progress. It's been called the greatest allegory ever written in history. And get this, it is the second best-selling book of all time. By the way, what is the number one best-selling book of all time? Yeah, the Bible, but that's number two. The Pilgrim's Progress. It follows the adventures of the protagonist, the main character, his name is Christian, 
as he makes this remarkable journey from the city of destruction to that celestial city. And so Revelation Media recently turned the book into a movie using uh, CGI animation. And so uh, Stacey and I watched it, we really enjoyed it. And uh, whether or not you read the book or watch the movie or both, here's what I know, as a Christian pilgrim, you're gonna relate to the main character because this guy, he just, he just encounters obstacle after obstacle after obstacle on his journey. How many of you guys know we live in a fallen world? And there's lots of obstacles, but we just, with God's help, need to keep progressing. And so as we talk about this theme today, we ask this question. The question is, what should we be doing as pilgrims as we make our journey? What should we be doing as pilgrims as we make our journey? The answer to that question can really be found in the entire New Testament, um, but we're in 1 Peter, and so today, Peter's gonna give us four points of instruction to help us on our journey. So here's where we're going this afternoon. If you're new to Calvary, you notice the numbers on the end of the sentences. Those are verses. And so what I do during the week is I don't come up with you know, something on my own that I hope is gonna make everybody feel good and then just you know, share some kind of motivational thing for everybody. No, uh, we, we believe this is God's word and we believe that we should be taking the instructions out of the text and teaching them to the Christians. And so these are verses. It's called expository preaching. And so as pilgrims, number one, we abstain from sinful passions. Number two, we should be submissive to authority. Number three, we should suffer patiently when mistreated. And then number four, we should stay close to the shepherd of our souls, all straight from the word of God. And so right now, if you're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, can you say amen so I know you're there? All right, so here we go. Peter writing to the scattered pilgrims. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's that word, sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How many of you guys know, you know this life's a battle? Somebody says, what's wrong with me? I got this war going on. You know, am I, am, is there something wrong with me? No, you, you live on planet Earth and you're a human being. And so we need to, as pilgrims, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, lost people are watching us and you may be the only Bible someone ever reads. It's kind of basically what he says in verse 12, but I'll go ahead and read the verse. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, lost people who need Jesus, Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God, you know, when Jesus comes back on the day of visitation, all right? So number one, if you're taking notes, as pilgrims, we need to abstain from sinful passions. Now, one of the reasons I love the Old Testament, and by the way, the Old Testament just as inspired as the New Testament one of the things I love about the Old Testament is that it's filled with examples of what I call good life choices and bad life choices, right? Because how many of you guys know life's all about choices? Every single day, we got these choices that we gotta make. And so we look at the Old Testament, 
We see sometimes they make good choices. A lot of times these people make bad choices. One of the most famous bad choices is the choice David made concerning Bathsheba. At that time in his life, verse 11, David was not abstaining from the passions of his flesh which waged war against his soul. And it happened in the spring of the year. David decides to send his army out to fight against his enemy, the Ammonites. See that 20 times real fast. Okay, and so the Ammonites living on the other side of the Jordan River, northeast of the Dead Sea up there, he's like, go ahead and go. I'm gonna hang back. That's a mistake. The Bible says at the time when kings go out to battle, what's David doing? He's not being a leader. He should be with his guys. He decides, I'm gonna get some R&R back home in Jerusalem. One evening, you know the story, he decides to take a stroll on his roof. And as he's walking around, he looks down, he sees a woman bathing. The Bible says she was very beautiful. And I know that David was very tempted. And so right then, because this guy's a believer, no doubt that warning light is going off on the dashboard of his mind, right? Danger, danger. But instead of heeding the warning light, he ignored it. And after he saw her, he made a series of choices. He chose to continue to think about her. He chose later on to send messengers and call her over. He chose to bring her into his room, and he chose to commit adultery with her. Regarding temptation, by the way, Paul told this to the Corinthians. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Everybody deals with this stuff. I don't care how old you are. But I love the next three words. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. With every temptation that we face in life, God always, always provides a way of escape. Just like the pilot. When the warning light goes off on the dashboard of his jet, warning, warning, right, danger, danger. Just like he's got a choice to hit that eject button and get out of there before that thing goes up in flames. So believers, when that warning light goes off, we have a choice to hit that eject button and get out of there before we go up in flames, so to speak. So there was many, many ways that David could have ejected, gotten away, fled, escaped this temptation. If you're taking notes, we're gonna spend a little bit of time here because this is really, really practical. David could have, number one, just looked away. Just look away. Just turn your head. You know, even though it's a magnet and it's pulling you in, just turn away. Job 31.1, Job is a man of character. Job says, and I quote, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Love that. I love that commitment. Do you think Job wasn't attracted to beautiful young women? Of course he was attracted to beautiful young women, but he was a man of character, and he knew I gotta honor my wife, number one, and I need to, more importantly, honor the Lord. And so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna make a commitment. I'm just going to look away. And some people say, say well, there's no, no harm in looking, man. 
but have they ever heard what Jesus said? If any man looks at a woman with lust, he commits adultery in his heart. If any man looks at a woman to lust after her, he commits adultery in his heart. And so David didn't have the same commitment as Job, at least on the night of this affair. But he could have, he could have looked away. The second thing he could have done is he could have changed the channel, the channel of his mind. Now look at that, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we all know this verse, right? We gotta take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I mean, how many thoughts are flying through our head always? So what we gotta do? We gotta, that perverted thought comes, we gotta take that thing captive, stop! And we gotta make it obedient to Christ. But that's not enough. I submit to you that we should also, Philippians 4, 8, replace that thought, change that channel. What does that mean? Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So we take the sinful thought captive, and we replace it, we change the channel in our minds, and we begin to think about what's true, honorable, just, etc. And so even though Paul, in those two verses, second line, is definitely talking about changing the channel of our mind, I wanna add something. I wanna submit to you that a lot of Christians need to change the channel on their TV. We have to. And by the way, today, not a lot of theology, a whole lot of practicality and application today. It's just where we are in the Bible. And I know I'm touching on a nerve right now because this is our culture, but we have to change that channel. How in the world some believers can allow perverted words and perverted images to just flow into their home and hearts through that flat screen or whatever they have in their home is beyond me. And guys, listen, you're gonna hear this next week because we're talking about a joyful union and marriage next week as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study, but guys, God has made you the head of your home. He's the spiritual leader. You're the spiritual leader. And so it's your primary responsibility to shut it off or to change the channel and not to continue to allow the junk to flow in, not just to your head and heart, but to your spouse and God forbid to our kids. And if what I'm saying convicts you and you decide to stop coming to church here, you know, I'm so sorry, I wish you would change your mind, but you know what? We have to continue to just speak the truth in love. And if it's convicting you, don't put the wall up. No, confess your sin and make a commitment to submit to the one who said, be holy for I am holy. It's just, listen, we just get one shot at this. So let's, we're not gonna get it perfect, but let's, let's try to get it right with the help of the Holy Spirit. David could have looked away, he could have changed the channel, and he could have called a friend for accountability. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and here it is, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. With those, I love that because the Lord hasn't called us to run this race alone. He's called us to run this race with other people who are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart, people who really do want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I'm saying this morning uh, is to have an accountability partner, 
Somebody who has the right to speak into your life. Someone who has the right to ask any question, anytime, anywhere. You need to know as a lead pastor of this church, I have someone like that in my life. I have someone who's over me, authority over me, who can speak and, uh, in my life and he can ask me any question, anytime, anywhere. Because here's what I know. When you put on the kitchen light, the roaches scatter. And if you will allow someone in your life to speak into your life and shine that light, then the sin will scatter. You don't have to do this alone. You can have a friend. And so what, what should David has, have done when he saw Bathsheba? He should have went into the palace, he should have grabbed his phone, and he should have texted his friend, Nathan the prophet. It's like, hey Nathan, hey man, you wanna hang out? Because I could really use your help right now. And if he would have done that, he would have avoided those embarrassing words later from Nathan the prophet as Nathan called him out and said, thou art the man. He could have just avoided all that if he would have looked away, if he would have changed the channel of his mind, if he would have called a friend for accountability, and if he would have went to the palace and grabbed that scroll and opened it up and meditated on the scriptures. It would have given him strength. Why? Because we know later in the New Testament, 1 John 2, 14, John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I love that. God's word is so clear. When we allow the word of God, we read it, we meditate, we allow it, right, to abide in us, then what happens? We become strong and therefore we can overcome the evil one. Why, because we're so strong? No, because God the Holy Spirit of God is taking the word of God and he's giving us the strength of God in our life to say no to temptation. And it's not just the word, it's prayer. David could have prayed for God's power. He could have made that choice. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, 40, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Pray. Get on your knees. Fall before the Lord. Ask him for his help and his strength. Something my mom talks about a lot when I talk to her, and she's gonna be, I think, 88 years old this, this year, and she always talks about prayer, pray, pray, because prayer, prayer gives you strength. Well, been listening, mom, and it's true. Not just the word of God, but prayer as well, and you guys have all heard me say this. Little prayer, little power, much prayer, you fill in the blank. Much power, much power. He could have, if he wanted to, poured into his marriage. All right, hold your place in First Peter. Go over, please, to Proverbs chapter five. By the way, warning, the Bible here is R-rated. It's very graphic, but it's graphic in a good way. Proverbs five, verse 15. Solomon, David's son, wrote this. No doubt he learned this stuff from dad. If you're looking at chapter five, verse 15 from Proverbs, can you say amen? amen? All right, here we go. Drink water from your own cistern and flowing water from your own well. Okay, so what does water mean there? What is the correct interpretation of water? Well, here's what, here's what you need to know. Um, we believe in the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the word of God but we also know that with the literal interpretation of the word of God, there's literary devices like metaphors 
And so that's a metaphor. The word water there is a metaphor for sexual thirst. And so satisfy your sexual thirst from your own cistern. Satisfy your sexual thirst from your own well. Who's that? Your spouse. Ladies and gentlemen, God created sex. He's a great creator. But he created it within the confines of marriage. That's what his word says in both the Old and the New Testament. And we can rebel against that if we want, but if we wanna be blessed and we wanna honor God and we wanna stop hurting people, then we'll do what he says. Verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? In other words, should your sexuality just be scattered around in the streets? from partner to partner to partner to partner. That's what our culture says. That's what so many movies say. But that's not what God says. So who are we gonna listen to? We should listen to the Lord. He says in verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. So don't commit adultery, David. You taught Solomon this principle. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So be faithful to your vows. A lovely, it gets graphic, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. God's pro-sex. He wants us to enjoy sex. He wants us to enjoy it in marriage. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? and embrace the bosom of an adulteress, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths, the iniquities, the sin of the wicked, and snare him, and he, there's consequences here, is held fast in the cords of his sin, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And so what should David have done? He should have, as you're turning back to 1 Peter, he should have looked away, he should have changed the channel, he should have called a friend, he should have meditated on the scriptures, he should have prayed for God's power, and he should have said, Abigail, his wife, honey, hey, you wanna go on a date night? You know, just pour into your marriage. And so, David did none of those things. He didn't hit the eject button. And so what was the result? He got her pregnant. And then after she got pregnant, she goes to him and says, honey, I'm pregnant. And then what did he do? He freaked out. And he used his power as king to have her husband killed on the battlefield to cover his sin. So he adds murder to adultery. And here, here's the thing, 3,000 years later, there's still preachers like me all over the world talking about this stuff. You think David likes that? There's, consequence, there's forgiveness for our sins. God will forgive you, but consequences are gonna roll in. And so he doesn't hit the eject button. He gets her pregnant. And so what happens? Heartache. The child that was conceived from their affair died soon after he was born. David experienced heartache after heartache after heartache for the rest of his life. It's no wonder in verse 11, Peter says, listen, I urge you. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Why does he urge us? Ladies and gentlemen, here's why. If you're with me now, say amen. amen. Peter urges us because he knows if we give in to temptation, we're not just gonna hurt ourselves, we're gonna hurt others. We're gonna hurt the people we love. 
Because here's the thing, you throw a rock in a pond, there's ripples. And there's gonna be a ripple from whatever line that we decide to cross. It's gonna affect a lot of people. It's so sad to me, but seemingly more and more Christian leaders are ignoring the warning light. Warning, warning, they're ignoring it. And they're dropping out of the sky and their ministries are crashing and burning. But you know what the real tragedy is? The real tragedy is the collateral damage in the church and in the world as the world just mocks us. And so here's what we need to realize. Whether we're among the leadership or the laity, God always provides a way of escape. Because God's faithful. It's up to us, it's our choice. If we're gonna hit the eject button and we can look away, we can change the channel, we can call a friend, we can meditate on scripture, we can pray for strength, and we can pour into our marriage, get out of that thing before that thing crashes and burns. It's our choice. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The idea there is governmental authority. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen to this, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. No, don't play the hypocrite. But living as servants of God. This is the old heresy of what's called antinomianism. In other words, against the law. It's people who say, I'm free in Christ, so I can go sin and do whatever I want to do. No, the reason Christ made you free is so you could be a servant of God. Verse 17, I love this. This is like, this is such classic, you know, blue collar, Peter the fisherman, practical truth right here. Honor everybody, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. <laughs> I love Peter. All right, so as pilgrims, we abstain from sinful passions, but we also, number two, need to be submissive to authority. Now, the time that Peter wrote this, the Roman Empire was an autocratic empire, an autocracy led by the infamous Nero, who hated Christians. And yet, even though wicked Nero's on the throne, Peter, writing to the Christian community, he says, you need to be subject to the governing authorities. Wow. Paul took it even further. Paul said in Romans 13, which by the way, the first part of that chapter is all about the subject that I'm talking about right now. You can read it later. I just pulled one verse out of it. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. That's apropos, because something's coming up on April 15th, is that right? Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now there's no doubt that a certain percentage of the taxes that the Christians in that day paid to Rome went to fund unworthy causes. There's no doubt it was used to build pagan temples. It was used, right, to fund unjust wars, etc., etc. And yet Paul tells Christians, pay your taxes. He's not just saying it to people in the first century. This is God's word to us today. The Lord says pay your taxes. Now, we're not gonna always agree on everything that the government spends our tax money on, right? 
But as Christians, we still need to obey the Lord. Here, here's a, a great idea. Why don't we just try to be the best citizens we can be in the United States of America and submit to the government, support our police, pay our taxes, right? As it says in verse 17, honor everybody, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, of course, we don't have an emperor today, right? We have a president. Here's the thing, even if we profoundly disagree with his policies, which by the way, some of his policies I profoundly disagree with, especially the one espoused by his party as far as the advocacy of the pro-choice movement, I will profoundly disagree with that until the day I take my last breath. But even if we profoundly disagree with the man and his policies, we have to honor the emperor, honor the president. Now what's the only exception to submitting to government authority? If you're with me here, say amen. Because there is an exception. If the governing authority ever tells you to contradict a clear teaching of God's word, you have to disobey the government and obey God. It takes courage, by the way. When Peter and John were hauled in to the authorities of their day for teaching and preaching Jesus Christ publicly, and they said, stop it, you're not allowed to say that name, no more Jesus stuff, right? The author of our, our letter, how did he respond to the governing authorities? Here's how he responded, and I quote, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And they went out and they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They disobeyed the government, why? Because the government tried to tell them not to share Jesus Christ. By the way, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Did you know in his day in 17th century uh, England that the Anglican church was the only legal church? And the problem with that, John, Bap John uh, Bunyan was a Baptist. He didn't have a license to preach. And so when he preached, they basically said, you are an unlawful preacher and you're speaking to an unlawful assembly. If we were to take our assembly right here at Calvary and lift it up and go back in time to the 17th century AD, the same time John Bunyan lived and planted that thing right in the middle of England, I would be arrested as your pastor. How many of you guys are thankful for the freedoms we have in America? Right? Thank God for that. And so John Bunyan was told to stop preaching, just like they told Peter and John. And guess what John Bunyan said? Uh, no. I'm gonna continue to teach and I'm gonna continue to preach. So guess what they did? They locked him up. Guess for how long? 12 years. 12 long years away from the woman he loved. I don't know how this guy did it. Away from all these kids. 12 years. And all he had to do, all he had to do was say, all right, I'll stop preaching. But instead of that, I just read the article this week from Christianity Today, you know what this guy said? I love his courage. He said, I would rather stay in prison 
until moss grows on my eyelids than be freed from prison and disobey God and not preach. You know what's missing in American evangelicalism today? Commitment. There's such a lack of commitment. I'd rather die in prison than be free and not share the Lord Jesus Christ or teach and preach the word of God. And what good came out of all that? Well, Pilgrim's Progress was written while he was in prison. Look at verse 18. Now you need to know that Peter's writing in the first century Roman Empire and slavery is legal. So keep that in mind, please. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it and still endure, <laughs> this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if you're taking notes as pilgrims, not the most popular message in the world, we're just going verse by verse, right? As pilgrims, we need to abstain from sinful passions. We need to be submissive to authority but then number three, we need to suffer patiently when we're mistreated. Now you need to understand, please get this, the New Testament does not endorse slavery. The New Testament just speaks to people where they're at. So where were these people at? They were in the Roman Empire where slavery was legal and it was absolutely rampant. And you need to know that the slavery of that day was not based on race, it was not based on the color of your skin. It was based on economics and social status. If you had a mountain of bills you can't pay, many people just chose to sell themselves into slavery to a wealthy family in order to pay off their debt. It's not right, but the New Testament is just speaking to people where they're at. There were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians who were slaves, and Peter says, number three, suffer patiently when you're mistreated. You fast forward 2,000 years to modern day America and thank God we live in a different culture. Thank God we have a 13th Amendment. Thank God that slavery was abolished in our nation way back in 1865. But before we just decide to skip over verses 18 through 20, thinking that they're not relevant to our lives today, what we need to do is we need to understand that there's an application here between the employee and the employer. So what we can do right now in verse 18 is we can read verse 18 in an applicational way. I want you to look at verse 18. Employees, be subject to your employers with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so what we're talking about here is being a good witness. How many of you guys would say, I really wanna be a good witness at work? Let me just see your hand if that's you. You wanna be a good witness at work. I, I do. And so if you're gonna be a good witness, here's some stuff that, that um, you know, dads should teach their kids and kids grow up and teach their kids and they grow up and teach their kids. Just some common sense stuff, right? If you wanna be a good witness at work, submit to your boss. Be on time. Have a good attitude. 
Work hard. Learn as much as you can about your area so you become an expert in your area. And see, here's the thing, if you do those things consistently, your boss most of the time is gonna love you even if you're an outspoken Christian. Why? Because he views you as valuable to the company. But few things are worse for the testimony of the Christian faith than, employee, than an employee who talks about Jesus while on the job and yet that person is not submissive, they're always late, they have a bad attitude, they're lazy, and they're not motivated to learn and excel. And listen, I know it's not, but if you're here and that's you, please stop talking about Jesus at work. Zip your lips. You're doing more damage than good. Now I'm gonna switch gears. As Christians, if a boss ever tells you to do something unethical or unlawful, you have to disobey your boss. You have to. We're Christian pilgrims. We can't do anything that's unethical or unlawful. But it's the boss, so? There's a boss above the boss. His name is God. We have to obey him. And so if that, I, I hope it never happens to you, but if it ever happens to you, then here's what you do. You go to your boss privately and you say, hey, you know what, I'm trying my best to be the best employee I can be, but what you're asking me to do violates my Christian faith and I just can't do it. You say, well, what if, what if he gives me grief? Then you go home and you open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, and you read, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You say, what if I lose my job? Listen to this, if you just do what's right, God will take care of you. He's sovereign, not your boss. Just obey the Lord and let the chips fall. If you wanna go make an appointment with your HR director, that's your prerogative. But, but listen, we gotta obey the Lord. And Jesus Christ, by the way, was the best example of anybody who, who suffered patiently when he was mistreated. I want you to look now at verse 21. In verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Can you guys say those four words, follow in his steps? Go ahead. That's what it's all about. Lifelong followers of Jesus. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so nobody in history ever suffered more unjustly than Jesus Christ. The religious leader says he's demon-possessed. His mother conceived him through fornication. The Jews, right, they arrested him, they blindfolded him, they punched him. Hey, who, prof who, who hit you? Prophesy. Bam, 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 until his face, the Isaiah says, is unrecognizable. He did that for you. They spit on him. They gave him to the Romans. The Romans open up his back with a flagellum. They cram a crown of thorns on his head. They nail him to a tree. He did that for you. Not only that, but his own little half-brothers during his ministry they mocked him, at, they mocked at him, made fun of him. 
and then his own disciples after his ministry, after he'd been arrested, they forsook him, see you later, they ran off in the darkness from the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen, if anybody in history ever had the right to file a complaint with the management of Israel or Rome, it was Jesus. And yet what did he do in verse 23? It says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now I want you to see the rest of what Jesus did in our last two verses. Check this out, please stay with me to the end here. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Can somebody just say, thank you, Jesus? Man, there's a big, big part of the gospel right there. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, the wood of the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As pilgrims, last point, we need to stay close to the shepherd of our souls. Stay close to him, the overseer, the shepherd, the one who loves you so much. And if you're here right now, you're listening to me and you're far away from the Lord, far away from the shepherd, here's what the Lord wants you to know. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that he wants you to return to him and he wants you to know that he wants to have that relationship with you again. He wants to walk with you. And if you're thinking, all this stuff, it's just too hard. <laughs> I can't. I'll close with this illustration if that's what you're thinking. I want you to imagine a father walking down the beach with his little three-year-old girl. Can you, can you just picture that right, right now? And they're walking along, and of course, his footsteps are farther apart than her little legs and her footprints. But she looks at her daddy's footprints, and because she wants to be an adult, she's like, I, I wanna follow in his steps. So what, what does she do? She jumps from footprint to footprint, wanting to follow in her daddy's steps, but here's the problem, she's just three years old, she's got little tiny legs, and after a while she gets tired, and after a while she gets frustrated, and after a while she's like, Daddy, I can't. And the daddy looks at her and says, I know, honey, but we can. He lifts her up, puts her little feet on his feet, and together they follow his steps. I'm talking about the key to the, to the victorious Christian life. As God's children, listen to this. He does want us to abstain from sinful passions. That's hard. He does want us to submit to authority. That's hard. He does want us to suffer patiently when mistreated. That's really hard. And at the end of verse 21, he says that we might follow in his steps. But if you look at points one through three, and like that little girl, you're like, I can't. It's too hard. I would say you're right. You can't accomplish points one, two, and three until you follow number four. Stay close to the shepherd of your soul, why? Because just like that daddy lifted up his little girl, Christ will lift you up and he'll put your little feet 
on his feet and together he will help you follow in his steps. Listen, listen. I know it's hard. I know the Christian life is difficult. I know the culture's against it, but you can't, I can't. But with God's help, we can. Jesus doesn't just want to be our example. He wants to be our enabler. When he went up, who came down? The Holy Spirit, the helper, that's his name. He came to help, lift you up, and make you a lifelong follower of Jesus. There's help available. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available. But the Holy Spirit will never come in until you turn to Jesus in sincere repentance and faith. It's the gospel. Listen, you're going this way, doing your own thing, going your own way. You hear the gospel, you hear about Jesus, you stop, listen, you turn around. I'm not talking about good works, earning your salvation. I'm saying you gotta be willing to let it go. Let go of your sin. What's faith? F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust him. Turn around, look at Jesus on that cross, and you know, you know why he's up there? He's bearing my sins in his body on the tree. So I don't have to pay for my sins in hell. He dies, he rises again, victorious over sin and death, alive. And you turn to him and you trust him. Repentance and faith. Listen, you give your life to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will come in. And he won't just be your example, not just your example, he'll be your enabler, amen? Amen.